Welcome to the Bethesda Christian Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit yourbcc.org or download our mobile app from the App Store. Good morning. Good morning to all the hearty souls that made it here an hour earlier. Glad that... uh, Clocks go automatically now, although my microwave clock kind of messed with my head a little bit this morning. It's like that one doesn't change automatically. We get used to this automation in our lives. But uh, still, it's great to be here. It's great to be here this morning. I want to uh, remind everyone, keep praying, keep praying. We've passed out a little prayer guide a couple of weeks ago. If you haven't picked one up, you can... Pick one up this morning. They should be in our uh, information racks. You can also go online, uh, yourbcc.info. If you click on the um, digital bulletin link, you'll get one of these too, so you can get one electronically. Because we ought to be praying. We're praying church. We believe in prayer. We spent several weeks early this year talking about prayer. Jesus encouraged us. When you pray, really making it uh, obvious. That's an expected part of our lives. He didn't say if, he said when you pray. So it should be normal, it should be every day. And let's have that, uh, let's have that bond of unity and prayer. We have the common bond, we have the common uh, unity in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Let's be a, a praying church. And I want to say thank you for sending uh, little notes and emails uh, and, and even letters, I have some talking about how, how you've prayed, uh, even outlining some of the prayers you've prayed. Thank you. It's uh, amazingly encouraging to know that uh, so many of you have taken this to heart. God answers prayers. He wants us to pray. And uh, use, so use this guide. There's just three points each week. It's not necessarily a, a, a daily devotional, but it's just to, to point you to some specifics to pray for our church. And as we get closer to Easter, we're also going to pray for the outside community. Uh, as I did last week, I picked a scripture from the coming week to just focus on because we're asking that you would meditate on, on the scriptures that are presented. So I've got one that we're going to go deeper into today. And uh, it's from the New Testament. The New Testament writer, the man named Paul, he wrote to a church that was in a city called Colossae. And we're going to be looking at uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, which are pr- part, of the, uh, part of our prayer this coming week. But before we get there, you can put your thumb in uh, Colossians chapter 2. But before we get there, I just want to give a little background, talk a little bit about this man named Paul. Paul, who was called an apostle of Jesus Christ. Just want to give a little background because I think it'll help us to appreciate better what he wrote and help us to understand it and bring it into our own time. Paul was a Jew. He was Jewish by blood, and he was also raised in the Jewish faith. He was very faithful and observant in the entire Jewish religious uh, faith, all their customs, all their rituals. He described himself as a Hebrew 
of Hebrews. Now, regarding this life in Jewish religion, he said, I'm a Pharisee. What was a Pharisee? A Pharisee was part of a group, a, a, a sect within the Jewish faith. And many of them were in leadership. So they were looked up to. A Pharisee was well-educated. They knew all the nuances of the religion. They knew all the practices. They knew all the rites. They knew all the rituals. And they practiced them. The Pharisees were distinguished by their very strict observance to the Jewish rites, rituals, and customs. All the laws of Judaism. Well, then came Jesus Christ. And when Jesus came, he upset the world of the Pharisees. Now, we've talked in the past several weeks, we've talked about Jesus' ministry that's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew early on, where he talked to a multitude of just common, everyday Jewish people. And it, it's what's called the Sermon on the Mount, where this big group of people, just everyday people, came to hear this man. And what Jesus taught them, it astounded them. They were astonished. They were sitting on the edges of their seats because he taught with an authority and he taught very differently than a Pharisee. When a Pharisee taught about God and what God expected of the, the Jewish people, for example, you shall not commit adultery. It was a hard and fast rule. Don't do it. Do this. Don't do that. And Jesus taught from an entirely different perspective. Jesus taught about the motive and the attitude of our hearts. When it came to this same command, you shall not commit adultery, Jesus said words like this, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. So Jesus brought out something more about life application. Life ap application was more than this pharisaical do and don't. There was more to living for God. There was more to applying God's word in a person's life than just do this, don't do that. That was a dead works approach to life. And Jesus presented a higher ethic. And some would say what Jesus presented was the spirit of the law versus just living by the letter of the law. You've heard it said, but I tell you, Jesus said it several times. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. You've heard, don't break your oath. But I tell you, don't make a vow. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now those were some challenging teachings that Jesus brought to the everyday person. And he pressed the people 
to, to really see and understand the essence, the heart of God's law, and then apply it to their lives. Live this out. And what was the essence that Jesus was driving at? It really boils down to love. Loving your wife. Well, what does that mean when, when it comes to the idea of adultery? It means you don't lust in your heart after another woman. That's loving your wife. It's not about the act. It's not just about the do and the don't. Loving your enemy. According to Jesus, that means you're not going to seek to be vengeful. Revenge isn't part of the agenda. You're not going to live the eye for an eye. So Jesus confronted the hardline teachings of the Pharisees. And Paul was a Pharisee. Could a guy like Paul, a Pharisee, could he ever break from this rules-based approach to religion and to living it? Could his heart be motivated by love instead of dead works? Well, it could. It could. But he wasn't going to do it on his own. This was not some mind over matter proposition. Paul needed Jesus. Paul needed Jesus and he received Jesus in a very, very dramatic way. Not what we would consider how most people come to Christ, how they come to faith in Christ. Paul had a very dramatic conversion to Christ. He was literally blinded, knocked down, and he heard audibly God speaking to him, the voice of Jesus. And evidently, Jesus, he wanted to see Paul's life turn around, so he intervened in this dramatic way, and Paul believed. He came to faith. He believed in Jesus, and he was transformed. He was transformed from this life as a Pharisee, but his transformation, it wasn't instantaneous. It didn't just happen the, the moment he was knocked down and blinded. After he turned his life over to, to Christ, he spent three years in Arabia learning more about Jesus. Nearly a decade back in his hometown of Tarsus. And even after all that, people were skeptical. Has this man really changed? Does he still hate the Christians? Ultimately, he was accepted even by some of Jesus' closest followers. And then they prayed over him. They prayed over him. They commissioned him to, to go out, to go beyond the area of uh, Jerusalem and where the, the heart and the center of Christ's ministry was. Go out. Go out to the Gentiles. Go out to the Roman cities and spread the good news. Spread the gospel. Tell people about the transformative power of Jesus Christ. After all, he had learned about it and he was living it. And he went out to share about sin being forgiven, the blood sacrifice of Jesus. Well, he began to travel and he evangelized for Christ. And his heart was, his heart really reached out to his fellow Jews. Yes, he went to these non-Jewish cities, what they called Gentile cities. But there was often in these cities a population of Jews and Paul reached out to them by blood he was a Jew and so he, he felt for his, uh, his brothers and sisters but by faith now by faith he had come to Christ 
He was a Christian. The religion of Judaism, that was his former way. That, all that, that pharisaical stuff, all those rules, that was his formal way. And he described that former life following all those Jewish laws. Everything that he did as a Pharisee, all of it, all of it, with its purpose, its intention to be holy before God, its purpose to, to, to be righteous before God, Paul called it all garbage. All of it garbage. It was lacking. And you, you can make a note in Philippians chapter 3. Just go read it. And he, he gives a details about this. Uh, he said, I was all about Judaism. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm a Jew by blood. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. And he says, more than that, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And regarding God's law, I was a Pharisee. As for righteousness based on God's law, I was faultless. I, I followed it. But having come to Christ, having come to Jesus, I consider everything I did as a Pharisee as garbage. Everything I did to gain favor before God, it's rubbish. I threw it in the trash that I might gain Christ and be found in him and not have a righteousness of my own that comes from following all these rules, but my righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, his blood sacrifice that won me salvation and forgiveness of sins. Just following all the rules, it wasn't enough to make a person holy and righteous. As a matter of fact, Paul described it in other of his writings as bondage. It was like being bound like a slave. He he paralleled it to being in slavery. If you follow all these rules and regulations, just because you believe it's going to make you righteous and holy, you're in a bondage. You're in a, you're in a slavery. You're captive to something that's empty and hollow, and there's no lasting value to it at all. And that is what Jesus was teaching. This is what Jesus was teaching early on in his ministry, places like the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus introduced a new way. And then Jesus talked about the perfect way. And what was that? Well, it was Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way. He is the way. All of the, all of the works of Judaism were attempts in ways of righteousness. But they all fell short. See, Jesus said, I am the way. The way to go before God Almighty, our creator, righteously. And Jesus said, follow me. And then he accomplished something for all of his followers and for every person who would come to follow him. And that's the forgiveness of sins, the total forgiveness of sins. And it was Paul, wrote, it was Paul who wrote that Jesus forgave us all our sins. He canceled the charge, which was against us. It stood against us and it condemned us and he's taken it away, nailed it to the cross. See, Jesus paid for sins with his life. And for a Jewish person, that was really difficult to, to accept and to understand. Even when a Jewish person came to Christ, when they came to faith, when they listened to a guy like Paul and they said, oh, I, I believe that. You know, Jesus died on the cross. And that, that has some eternal meaning. But many struggled now with giving up 
all of these tra traditions of Judaism. And what happened was, in many of the early Christian churches, there were these factions. There were these groups that kept pushing and pushing. You need to keep these customs, like circumcision. But a Christian doesn't need to be circumcised. It's not necessary. Christian life is based on faith. It's a matter of the heart. Back to what Jesus taught. What's your motive? What is your motive? What's going on inside? It's not about some mark in the flesh. So as Paul began his ministry to the early Christian churches, he discovered that many, many were being pressured to integrate these Jewish customs and all of these rites into Christianity. And that came from pressure of Jews within Christianity, those who had converted and sincerely converted, but yet were still struggling, like, ah, oh, I should continue these food laws and that kind of thing. And the pressure also came from the outside, too. Outside of Christianity, just, just the Jews in general that didn't like their fellow country men and women converting to Christianity. And then there were these other religious ideas. That first century, it was Greco-Roman. There was all the, the Greek myths and uh, the Greek gods and the false religions of the day. And they also pressured this new Christian faith. Stop. Stop with that Christianity. But Paul would write, and he would write really to every single church that he wrote to, resist that. Resist that. You need to stick with what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. He died for you. He was resurrected. He is the way. Don't go back to the ways of Judaism. Resist the philosophies of the culture that would tell you there's gods of the sun, moon, and the stars. All of that takes away from Jesus. These rites and practices and philosophies, they belittle the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. You have received Christ. Live in him. And this is what Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. So Colossians 2, verses 6 through 8. This former Pharisee writing, So then, just as you received Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. He's writing this because they're being pulled. They're being pulled by the outside. They're being pulled from some inside. Continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Now, Paul wrote to this church in Colossae. He likely never visited this church. Was likely never there. Was writing because he had heard about them. Heard about how they were living a life of faith. But yet they were being tugged by these different thoughts. These different uh, religions. These different ideas from the Greek and Roman culture. And also from Judaism. And he's encouraging them. Stay with Christ. Stay with Christ. Paul was well acquainted with these outside forces of, uh, uh, from Christianity that kept pulling people from their faith. And so he presents here in this brief passage, 
And if you read the whole chapter, he gets into details about food laws and such. But this is somewhat of an introduction here, and he presents a contrast. There, there's a life in Christ, a life that needs to be rooted in him and built up in Christ. Because in Christ, this is a life of liberty. That's the implication. That's what he's implying here. Now, he didn't state it directly. We don't read about liberty and freedom in this particular passage, but he implies it. And he stated it before. He writes it in other letters that this is foundational to our faith in Christ, that Jesus coming and you turning your life over to Jesus, there is a liberty involved there. It sets you free. In Christ, there's liberty. There's freedom. Well, freedom from what? Liberty from what? Well, there's freedom. There's freedom from the power of death, hell, and the grave. Well, that's a great thing. There's freedom from the penalty that I owe because of sin. Well, that's a wonderful thing to be free from. There is freedom from from the condemnation of the devil. Therefore, there is no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. There is freedom from from an approach to life that is rule-based as a way to win righteousness. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. That's a true statement. And that freedom is implied here in verses 6 and 7 that I read. And then there's the contrast to this freedom. And that contrast comes in verse number 8. Where Paul wrote, see to it that no one takes you captive. Well, what is the opposite of freedom? Well, it's being in bondage. It's being in the handcuffs. It's being captive. Now, what, what is a captive? What, what was a captive to that first century audience that Paul was writing to? Well, that's not a free person. That's a slave. A captive is a slave or a prisoner chained up. And Paul's saying, don't go there. Don't be taken captive again. Have you been released from your chains? Well, we sung that this morning. I'm released from my chains. I'm a prisoner no more. What does that mean? We're set free. We're set free from all of these things that, that I mentioned. The chains are gone. And Paul expressed here, don't allow the chains to be put back on. Let no one take you captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Now for the Colossians, those pulling them back to Judaism were depending on their human tradition. And then there was this line about the elemental spiritual forces of the world. And what did that refer to? Paul used a word here that meant the heavenly bodies. It, it was a reference to the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars. There were all these false religions uh, of the Greeks that were still part of life then. And people thought, gee, it's the sun, it's the moon and the stars. And my life and my destiny are tied up in that. And my life and destiny are ordered by the stars or the sun or whatever's up in the skies. And that's what we would just call it superstition. But it was the philosophy of the times. The people of Paul's day day were being pulled by these things. Forget that Christianity. You think you're free from something? No, no, come on. Look, the sun and the stars, you can see them. That's what sets our destiny. 
or do this, do this. Don't do that, don't do that. Follow the ways of Judaism. Superstitions, false religions. Now, now can we bring that forward to our time? What in 21st century North America, what would pull us from our freedom in Christ? What would tempt us back into bondage? We live in a culture right now where we could probably describe it in two words. Anything goes. Anything goes. And what's the purpose of such a, a culture of anything goes? Well, it's to satisfy you. It's all about our happiness. You know, what, what makes you happy? And that's a big, big draw. It's a huge pull. That's a, a real reason to be built up and strengthened and rooted in, in your faith in Christ because our world would say today, you're foolish. You know, to, to have faith in Jesus Christ, that's foolish. You follow Jesus? How does that make you happy? What do you want? What do you want? What do you desire? What makes you happy? Because you know what? You should be happy. You should be happy. You deserve it. You deserve it. Pursue it. And after all, our country was founded on it, right? Wasn't it? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Our country was founded on this philosophy, right? And our philosophy of the day says, do whatever. Anything goes for your happiness, no matter the cost. You're not happy in your marriage? Find someone who will make you happy. That's okay. You're depressed about your financial situation? Well, do whatever it takes to get more money. Hey, the house is too small. The clothes are out of style. The car isn't cool enough, right? You need more. You deserve more. So go out and get more. But we live in this culture of consumerism that preaches more is better. More is better. It'll make you happy. And that is, if that's how you define happiness, and, and I'll say I just think the founding fathers who wrote that, that little clause about the pursuit of happiness and that it's an unalienable right, I think their definition of happy was probably a little different than ours. I will say it's different than the culture today. Today, it's just all about more, more, more. We have gone from a one-shift culture to a three-shift culture. 24 hours a day, everything is going. Production continues on and on. Establishments are open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Why? So that we can have instant gratification. Everything can be available anytime, day or night, to satisfy that need for more. So if you don't have this, you don't have that, you need it now, you can get it now because everything's open all the time and everything's being produced all the time. Why? So you can be happy. So I can be happy and the trouble is that when we get it whenever it is it's just a moment of gratification it's a fleeting moment a moment that's here and quickly gone and a moment that doesn't satisfy completely and what's the result the result is perpetual emptiness it's a perpetual emptiness that yields a constant state of lack so we're in a constant state of desire this is this is the way the culture is is forming us to want more. And it's a lie. It's a fallacy that if you attain the next thing, that you'll finally be happy. That's the philosophy of the day. And it's hollow and it's empty and it's deceptive. 
But man, does it have a powerful, strong draw. Now, and as Paul puts it, it depends on human tradition. What's a tradition? A tradition is you know, the handing down of something, the handing down of information, beliefs, customs, by word of mouth or by example from one generation to the next. And, and, and it's not necessarily writing down instructions. And all of this, all of this instant gratification, it's being handed down by example. And we see it all, all over the place. It's presented as normal. Absolutely normal. Hey, you, you're pregnant and you don't want that child because it's going to be an inconvenience in your life. Terminate that pregnancy. That's okay. It's legal. It's your choice. No one can tell you what to do and you'll be happy. Your spouse is not fulfilling your desires. Well, perhaps a change is in order. Hey, connect with that long ago friend. Just go out there on social media. You'll find that high school sweetheart, whoever you missed back in the day. And you know, that person in the office has done it. They've connected. They've connected with that old flame on social media. And wow, don't they seem happy? Well, you can do it too. Hey, can't afford that new wardrobe. You know, those shoes you've been walking by, they've been calling your name. The house, the car. Hey, spend now. You deserve it. Use credit. It's okay. Live beyond your means. Everyone is doing it. And they're smiling. They're happy. And what about your social media presence? Just not what it should be, right? Should be more popular. You know, if we were more popular, we'd be happy. So more photos, more photos of you, reveal more of you. You need some videos that are going to get some more likes. You know, something more exciting, provocative, titillating, whatever. You'll get more followers. People will like you. Might even go viral. So, you know, if you're unhappy, unsatisfied, unfulfilled, what will bring you happiness right now? This is what the culture is telling us. The culture would say, you, you should have it now. It's all about you. And this is what we're handing down as tradition. It's a tradition of narcissism. And Paul the apostle would ask, did you receive Jesus Christ as Lord? Did you? Then live in him. Live in him. Now, a life that exhibits him and presents Jesus. Because in Jesus there is everything that fulfills. In him is everything that brings true happiness. In him is life and liberty. In him is eternal life. Be rooted and built up and strengthened in him. Ah, but I'm unhappy. I'm unhappy. How, how can I resist? If he's asking us to resist the howl and, and deceptive pull of the world, how can we do it? In the middle, right in the middle of Paul's little passage there where he switches to the contrast between verse 7 and verse 8, I believe he includes the antidote. He gives us the cure. He gives us the remedy to unhappiness. He gives us the remedy to a, narcissist, a narcissistic culture. And what is it? He says, be overflowing with thanksgiving 
Man, if you're being fooled by the hollow and deceptive philosophy that is telling you that you lack, that you need more, that you should have more, that you're out of style, that you're unpopular, that everyone else has more, and you should have more. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on what is eternal and not what is temporary and exercise gratitude. Be overflowing with thankfulness. I believe there is this is an antidote right there. Be thankful for what you have. Don't be looking at what you don't have. Don't be jealous of people who, who have more than you. Be thankful for what you have. Be grateful for who you are. Don't be jealous of someone who isn't you, who may be in a different station, a different position in life, who has a different job. Be grateful for who you are. Be grateful for who you have in your life. Be grateful for what others have. Celebrate what others have. Stop focusing on what you perceive to be missing or lacking. Be rooted in Jesus and be grateful. Jesus, Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you saved me from death, hell, and the grave. Jesus, thank you that you paid a debt I couldn't pay. And now I'm free from my sin. Jesus, thank you that there's no condemnation for them that are in you. Thank you for my, my righteousness, that you're my righteousness, and I don't have to go out and prove it some way by keeping all these rules and not eating shellfish. Jesus, thank you for that. I'm free. Thank you that I got breath in my lungs. Thank you that I'm standing up today. I'm grateful that I'm inside a, a warm place on a cold day. Thank you. I'm not malnourished. Jesus, thank you. I live in a free country. Be grateful. Thank you for my spouse. Jesus, thank you for my family. Thank you for those you've surrounded me with. I'm grateful for my job. Maybe it's not the, the place that I think I should be, but I'm grateful for it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for who I am in you. Thankfulness. This is the antidote to selfishness. It's the antidote to wanting more. It's the antidote to feeling lack. It is the antidote to the lie, to the deception that tells you you need more. Begin to overflow with thanksgiving and you'll have a breakthrough. You will break the hold of this hollow and deceptive philosophy that depends on human traditions rather than on Christ. Depend on Christ. Depend on Christ and overflow with gratitude and thanksgiving. Let's pray today. Today, we're going to close our service in prayer. And if you got something to share, you got something to be thankful for, come on down and share with an elder of the church. And pray a prayer of thanksgiving and be grateful before God. And if you have a need, a need that's a physical need, if you have a, a financial need, if you have any kind of need at all, we want to pray for that need. Not necessarily a desire because, well, my next door neighbor just got a new car. No, no, pray for your needs. Offer your needs before God Almighty. Come with a humble heart. God will meet you. God will meet you. Our elders are prepared. They, they prepare, they pray, they want to be vessels of God's grace for you. And I want to just invite all our elders to the altars right now. And if you have any need come to the altars this morning and if you have something to be grateful for come and pray a prayer of thanksgiving God I'm grateful thank you 
And even if you've been neglecting to be thankful or grateful to him, be reminded of it this morning. We are a blessed people. We are. God has given so much to us. We have so much to be grateful and thankful for. Let's be grateful, grateful and overflowing with thankfulness in our heart. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Lord, Lord, I just pray, God, for everyone in this place, Lord, that we would be rooted, strengthened in Christ and be overflowing with grateful hearts, grateful hearts. Lord, as people come to these altars this morning, as hearts come, as needs come, God, use these elders right, right here. Lord, may they be vessels of your blessing. Lord, open channels. Your word says, if there's any sick among you, let them come to the elders of the church to be anointed with oil. We believe, Lord, that outward sign is, is a visible reminder of the presence of your Holy Spirit. So come, Holy Spirit, and do great works here this morning, we pray. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.